Hello and welcome to What You've Been Watching, an up-to-the-minute film and TV podcast where your host and leading film critic Roshan Chandi gives you his recommendations for what to watch in the world of TV and film, rounds up the weekly entertainment news and asks guests and listeners the big question, What You've Been Watching? Hello, Roshan Chandi here, and welcome to this week's episode of What You've Been Watching. What have you been watching? I'll pitch that question again at the end of the show, but please feel free to get in touch with me at my podcast email address. That's what you've been watching at roshansreviews.co.uk. I'd love to hear about what you've been watching, if anything, in the world of TV and film. We've got lots to talk about today, lots of great films that I've been watching for me to discuss, along with a very special guest interview. Yes, Jamie Morris, Screen Section co-editor of Left Lion and the man who I send my Left Lion reviews to for editing joined me last week to discuss what he's been up to and what he's been watching and we had a really good conversation it was good to finally see the face of the man I send my reviews to I mean I'm usually used to just negotiating things with him via email and seeing his little circle email photo crop up at the top of my phone when he responds to my emails. So it was nice to finally put a face to a name. (laughs) We chatted about a lot of things, particularly about his love and my newly found love, to be honest, for the films of Wong Kar Wai, the Hong Kong filmmaker behind the movies Chunking Express and In the Mood for Love, amongst others. I watched both those films recently on Jamie's recommendation recommendation and absolutely loved them and really enjoyed chatting about them with Jamie. So many thanks to him for coming on the show. What else have I been doing? Well, just today I started reading Sally Rooney's Normal People. I, I felt like I ought to give it a go, partly because I need to get into reading as much as I enjoy watching, but also and obviously because I absolutely loved the Normal People TV series. It was easily the best show of last year, and I absolutely fell in love with Connell and Marianne, played by Paul Mescal and Daisy Edgar-Jones, and I'm only, what, eight pages into the book, and already I don't want to put it down? I don't know if that has something to do with my crushes on Connell and Marianne, or just the strength of Sally Rooney's writing. Of course, I've had to put it down as I've been busy recently with college and various other projects, but I can't wait to read more. I don't want to turn this show into a what you've been reading show, but really do check out Normal People if you can. Both the TV series, it's available entirely on BBC iPlayer, and the book by Sally Rooney, which will be widely available provided the bookshop's opening time. Anyway, I'm drifting off topic. This is a show called What You've Been watching and it's about what I've been watching and what you as guests and listeners will be watching. You can hear my conversation with Jamie Morris about what he's been watching in a bit after I tell you what I've been watching. One of the big films of the week that I've been watching is News of the World. Now, this is the latest film from Paul Greengrass. He's a director perhaps best known for the Jason Bourne movies, but also his style is characterised by taking real-life news stories and giving them a dramatic, almost action movie spin. His films are characterised by shaky camera work, close-ups, and heavy newsworthy stories, and he combines documentary with action 
action. He did it for the Troubles in Northern Ireland in Bloody Sunday, the 9-11 attacks in United 93, the 2009 Maersk Alabama hijacking in Captain Phillips, and the 2011 Norway attacks in 22 July. Now, when I first heard about this film being made, which was about a year ago now, before all this pandemic kicked off, when I heard the title, News of the World, and given Paul Greengrass's previous track record with taking real-life stories and giving them a dramatic twist, I was expecting this to be a movie about the News of the World phone hacking scandal with Tom Hanks as Piers Morgan or something like that. <laughs> but no, News of the World is very different to previous Paul Greengrass movies. For one thing, it's not based on a true story, but a 2016 novel of the same name by Paulette Giles. The camera work is focused rather than shaky, and there's big wide shots rather than close-ups. It still has many scenes worthy of someone like David Lean, though. Make no mistake, this is a very different venture for Greengrass, but it is a welcome one, and every bit as good as his previous films. For example, it has great father-daughter-like chemistry between Tom Hanks and German child legend Helena Zengel. The plot takes place in the year 1870, and the American Civil War rages on. Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, who's played by Tom Hanks, is a former member of the Confederate Army, scraping by making a living off travelling from town to town, reading newspapers for 10 cents per person, hence the title News of the World. Following one such news reading, Kid heads off to his next location. On the way he encounters an overturned wagon on the road. He dismounts the wagon to further investigate and finds a dead black soldier and a young white girl named Johanna who is dressed in Native American clothing. She's played to quote Kurt Cobain with a smell like teen spirit by 12 year old Helena Zengel who was so extraordinary in German child drama System Crasher. Following an encounter with the Union Army Patrol, Kid receives instructions to take the girl to Union officials at a checkpoint in a town up the road. Here they will sort out her Bureau of Indian Affairs paperwork and see that she is returned to her surviving family. Kid reluctantly accepts the request, and so the rest of the movie is about what Kid and Johanna get up to in their adventures, leading back to Johanna being reunited with her family first thing to say about this movie is that there are many scenes in this movie that haven't been seen in cinema since David Lean was making huge sweeping Hollywood epics in the 60s. There's an aerial shot for example of a series of horse and carts on the road that has some of that epic scope and majesty of the Bolshevik road scenes in Dr. Zhivago. There's also a scene where Hanks and Zengel are caught in a dust storm that reminded me partially of the sand dune scenes in Lawrence of Arabia but also of John Steinbeck's classic Dust Bowl set novel, The Grapes of Wrath. It, it also reminded me of David Lynch's much maligned Dune, which is actually getting a remake later this year from Denis Villeneuve. There's multiple scenes on the prairies with bison that actually, oddly enough, reminded me of Little House on the Prairie, which I actually absolutely loved watching as a child. You could certainly imagine Charles, Caroline, Mary and Laura Ingalls having the kind of adventures that Kid and Johanna have in this movie. 
There's also a video game quality to some of the set pieces, with green grass conjuring up obstacles for Kid and Johanna to compete with. There's a boulder, a Union Army patrol, ex-militia, a scene where their horse and wagon is destroyed. It all makes for really spectacular cinema. Now, the film's title, News of the World, comes from a fake news storyline that comes quite late on in the film. At one point, Kid is contracted to read the approved news for the town's leader, but he actually reads a different paper about a group of coal miners rallying against a cruel man. This particular story provokes civil unrest, and this storyline could obviously and easily have felt chillingly contemporary in this current post-truth era, where Donald Trump and Boris Johnson have made lying seemingly the norm in today's politics. But if I have any contention with this film, it's that this particular fake news storyline felt a little bit tacked on and underdeveloped compared to the spectacle of Kid and Johanna's prairie adventures. Like, why couldn't it just be an adventure movie or a western, which it is, and works brilliantly as that alone? It didn't necessarily need this fake news subplot, despite it being the title of the film. That's a very minor quibble, though, because the movie's best bits are easily those between Tom Hanks and Helena Zengel. They have this wonderful quasi-paternal father-daughter chemistry that just makes my heart melt, and it's the throbbing heart of this film. Some skeptics of previous Paul Greengrass movies have noted a coldness to his execution, a criticism I've never understood, to be honest. I've never found his films cold or chilly, and I don't think that complaint could at all be levelled at News of the World, which just throbs with the goodness of the soul, thanks to Hanks and Zengel's chemistry. I mean, Helena Zengel is just an extraordinary child actress. I can't believe she's only 12 years old. It is crazy. She's just brilliant at being wild and crazy and off the rails, as she was in System Crasher, full of feisty teen spirits. That's my second Kurt Cobain quote of the day. <laughs> but I think as well as being wild and off the rails and crazy, she's also really surprisingly good at being sweet and childlike, which she absolutely is in the just lovely final scene between her and Hanks. Now, Helena Zengel was nominated for a Golden Globe for her performance here, and in my opinion, she deserves to win. That will make her the second youngest ever winner of a Golden Globe. But I think what's really crazy and outrageous is that Tom Hanks wasn't nominated for a Golden Globe too. He was completely robbed of a very worthy Globe nomination. And I'm going to commit heresy now. I've never been the biggest fan of Tom Hanks's acting. I know, I know, you probably want to strangle me now for saying that, but I've always found him a little bit bland and boring. But he's brilliant here. We know him and love him, obviously, in the real world for being the nicest man in the world, and that really shows in the, his scenes with Zengel on the road in a horse and cart. But he's also surprisingly good, for one thing, at taking a beating, but also being gruff and grizzled, which are two traits I would never normally associate with Tom Hanks. I mean, Tom Hanks is many things, but gruff and grizzled is not one of them. But he's great. To sum it up, this is a macho boy's own adventure with a very big heart. It's got a beautiful father-daughter chemistry at its core and spectacle that hasn't been seen since the 60s. I mean, I watched this on Netflix and it skipped cinemas and I just so wish I'd seen it on a huge IMAX screen. It would have been spectacular. Now, some people might say, 
say it's less thought-provoking and deep than previous Paul Greengrass movies, which I can certainly understand, but as immersive, purely spectacular cinema goes, there's scenes here that will be studied in film studies classes for decades to come. Really worth checking out, and one of the biggest snubs of this year's Golden Globes, to be honest. That's News of the World, directed by Paul Greengrass and starring Tom Hanks and Helena Zengel. It's available on Netflix now. So that's me done talking about what I've been watching this week. Now it's time to hear my conversation with Jamie Morris about what he's been watching. I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it. So here it is. Hello to Jamie. Hi, Rish. Thank you for having me on the show. It's just really good to, to have another guest on my show. Um, so just briefly tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for a living. So I am a journalism student at Nottingham Trent University. Um, I'm in my third year, which means I am just about ready to jump off and go into the world of entertainment journalism. Um, I also do various freelancing and volunteering alongside that. Uh, primarily, I am a, the voluntary uh, co-editor of the screen section of Left Lion magazine, which is Nottingham's culture magazine, which, yep. of course, Roshan writes for. Yep. Um, <laughs> And that involves me communicating with various different writers from around the city um, and commissioning all of these reviews and uh, being really involved with that local screen culture. Yeah, it's been really good, obviously, because I've been writing for Left Lion, I think, since April last year now. And um, I've just had a really good experience. And I've, I've, I feel like I've grown as a writer and I feel much more confident about my writing, basically. Um, see, I've asked you to come on the show today because... I I mean, the, the title of my show is What You've Been Watching, and that's like a rhetorical question, basically. So I'm going to ask you now, what you've been watching? So, yeah, over the past couple of weeks, uh, what I've been watching has been mostly made up of uh, Chinese-language feature films. Um, the reason for this is that BFI Player have just done a retrospective season of uh, the director Wong Kar Wai's films. Um, and this is a director I've been meaning to check out for a long time now. Uh, so I watched a handful of his films and then I thought might as well continue the theme and watch some more Chinese films. So out of his, I've watched uh, Chunking Express, In the Mood for Love, 2046 and The Grandmaster. And then on top of those, I've also watched uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and Ashes Purest White. Yeah, so you watched a really wide range of films then. Um, I mean, I recently myself watched Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express and In the Mood for Love. I actually watched them both last night, actually, for the first time. And you've been watching Chinese language feature films. Do you think we're experiencing a golden age in East Asian cinema? I mean, China now is the largest movie market in the world. And Parasite, for example, which was from South Korea, became the first foreign language film to win Best Picture at the Oscars last year. When do you think this turnaround happens? And do you think we are in a golden age of Oriental East Asian cinema at the moment? So I think that there have been a number of these sort of waves of East Asian cinema really uh, taking over. I think probably the first ones would have been the 50s and 60s where uh, people like Akira Kurosawa uh, in Japan were making films and they started to kind of go around the festival circuits and uh, really made a, a name for East Asian cinema uh, globally. Uh, since then, there have been a few more instances of this. Uh, in the 2000s, uh, with Japan again, there's this sort of craze for uh, violent, 
uh, J-horror films. Back then, they would have been shown in cinemas quite regularly, uh, which seems bizarre now that multiplexes would be showing things uh, so niche, but they were a craze back then. Yeah. Um, and now, uh, with Parasite ushering in a new era, um, specifically for South Korean cinema, um, but I think East Asian cinema as a whole has really benefited from that. Uh, it's hard to say how big of a um, golden age this would be. It, it's a shame that just after Parasite won Best Picture, um, cinemas everywhere closed, and it's hard to measure would South Korean films have then been getting more theatrical releases, and maybe we'll see them after the pandemic. Uh, but I think where it's really at is uh, streaming. If you wanted to, you could live off East Asian films on Netflix and Prime and BFI Player, and I sort of do. Um, so it, it's been really great to have these films so accessible. And so yeah, I'd, I'd say it is a golden age in a way. Yeah, it absolutely is. I, I, I did lots of research specifically about Chinese cinema before doing this interview. And in 2010, it had the third largest film industry by number of feature films produced annually. Um, it, in 2012, it went on to become the second largest market in the world by box office receipts. Um, the country has the largest number of screens in the world since 2016. And now it is the, you know, the, the world's largest movie market. So yeah, I think that we, we are really seeing Chinese cinemas really become very accessible at the moment. I often go to the cinema, for example, and shortly before they closed, I was going often to, to Cineworld, you know, in, in Nottingham, and they were regularly showing Chinese films. Obviously, Parasite is not Chinese, but it's from South Korea, but it's from that area of the world. And I think it's opened up our eyes to a completely different angle of cinema. I mean, I, I think it was always there, but it, it's become more mainstream now, thanks to Parasite winning, you know, Best Picture at the Oscars. Um, um, so, you know, Wong Kar Wai, the director, he's cited Martin Scorsese, Christopher Nolan, and uh, Quentin Tarantino as influences on his work. He's often been compared to Jean-Luc Godard, uh, Martin Scorsese, Michelangelo Antonioni, Alfred Hitchcock, and uh, Bernardo Bertolucci. When watching Chunking Express and In the Mood for Love in particular, because those are the ones that I've watched, and I, and I, I lo absolutely love them, by the way, did you detect any other filmmaking influences? So I think Wong, like you said, just he has some very eclectic influences and his films are a kitchen sink of all kinds of things, but arranged in a really uh, beautiful way. Uh, as you mentioned, Martin Scorsese is a really clear influence, I'd say, especially on Chunking Express with that whole sort of neon thing going on that you can see in films like Taxi Driver. One influence that really jumped out of me is uh, the Japanese director Yasujiro Ozu. You may have heard of him. He directed the film Tokyo Story. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I haven't actually seen any of his films, actually, but I've heard of him, yeah. Um, as with Wong, I think both of their films are about uh, not necessarily things happening, but the emotions that people feel in between these events. Um, so Tokyo Story, for example, is mostly just people sat indoors talking and eating, um occasionally going for a walk but it's there's not really any plot to it and uh chunking express and in the mood for love do have a plot and it, it's a it, it really engaging plot in both of those films but i find uh one places so much emphasis on things not really happening at all um, and that's where the emotion comes out so yeah. in chunking express you've got uh scenes set in that kebab shop where people are just sat listening to music or drinking 
uh, in the mood for love you've got this uh, recurring thing of them walking up and down the stairs to the noodle bar uh, so scenes like that i think are a clear reference or homage to uh, yasujiro ozu yeah all those comparisons i can completely understand i i thought i detected elements of david lynch actually um specifically with the soundtrack of chunkin express in in particular with those kind of very loud sort of saxophone-like sounds I often associate with a lot of David Lynch's films like uh, Mulholland Drive or Twin Peaks on television, for example. And often they feature characters in unusual attire, you could say, very much looking like caricatures, I thought. Um, and there's lots of segments of characters literally sitting around and just reflecting um, and, and not doing a great deal, almost like a pie in a kind of way. And that's what I noticed with that. Um, and then also I thought there was definitely elements of Quentin Tarantino there, especially with the lack of a linear narrative and the, you know, there was moments of excessive violence, I think, as well. Like, for example, when she she shoots the, the drug baron in Chunking Express, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, definitely you can feel a lot of influences, although I think his film really resists classifications often because he's kind of made a style for himself that other people have influenced. Um, and... One of the things that I loved about these films, Chunking Express and In the Mood for Love, is that they made me live and breathe and feel like I was in East Asia. And I'm, I'm going to let you know now, I'm, I'm someone who's lived in East Asia. I used to live in Bangkok, so you know I've, I, I know that sort of side of the world quite well. And as someone who's lived in Bangkok, for example, in Thailand, it brought back a lot of memories for me. I, mean, I haven't been to Hong Kong, for example, but I've you know, lived in that sort of area of the world. And I just wanted to ask you, have, have you been to East Asia, for one thing? And did these movies make you want to go there? Well, I've got to say, I'm envious of you there because I've never been, um, never even been out of Europe. But uh, it's sort of a, been a, a life's uh, goal or dream for me to go to Japan in particular. I think Japan cinema and just culture in general is uh, something I have a lot of familiarity with. I grew up when anime was really prominent on the TV and that introduced me to Japanese cinema. And then as a result of that, I've branched off to South Korean and Chinese cinema. Um, and then every time I see a film from another one of these countries, it's, oh, that's another one on the list, um, so, somewhere I want to travel to. So absolutely, I think Wong Kar Wai does an amazing job of uh, really capturing the beauty of Hong Kong. And I'd love to visit uh, some of the places he's shot on camera. Yeah, there's so many great East Asian locations. They go to Singapore, they go to Angkor Wat in Cambodia, for example, in, in, in The Mood for Love. And it just really, really brought back those memories of living in Thailand, for example. And this feel of the whole atmosphere, the hustle and bustle and the, the heat, you know, often because it's very hot there in that part of the world. And I, I just find it a very fascinating culture, to be honest. And I find that it's, it's not a culture that we see a great deal on film, or as in we, we haven't, certainly in the Western world, we, we aren't necessarily used to seeing East Asian cinema on film. And I think that, as I said, with Parasite, that absolutely gave birth to this new wave that we're seeing at the moment of, of East Asian films. Um, one of my favorite songs, uh, California Dreaming by the Mamas and Papas, um, features heavily in Chunking Express. What do you think was behind Wong's intention to use this song so repeatedly? Well, first of all, it's a damn good song, isn't it? So I think that's reason enough. Um, but I think one thing he does, um, he does this in, in The Mood for Love as well, is he repeats um, from a, a very sort of small selection of songs, an eclectic selection, but it is four or five as opposed to, say, Pulp Fiction, where there's 
loads and loads of songs in that film's soundtrack. Uh, but I think Wong likes to repeat these songs uh, to punctuate the films and to have these emotional touch points. Um, so the first time you hear um, California Dreaming in Chunking Express is when you, you meet Fei Wong's character and she's playing it on the uh, the radio in the kebab shop really loud. And then I think every time you hear it from then on, you think of that first time that she's played it. And I think it also obviously becomes a reoccurring gag as well. Um, the fact that she only listens to this one song and plays it really loudly. But yeah, um, I think it becomes synonymous with her character and helps you to connect with her in that way. It plays so often. I don't think I've heard a song in a film that has played so much in the space of the same film because yeah. he doesn't just play it once. He plays it again and again and again. And I absolutely love that song. And I, I'm glad they chose the original version because it's actually been covered so many times across history. Um, but I, I think it you know, really captured the spirit of the film. Which I, I almost found it like a dream watching Chunking Express, to be honest, mm. you know, in, in the sense that, which is again, why I would have compared it to David Lynch, for example. How it has these moments sometimes of people just being in tranquility and being just completely on their own trip, basically. And, and it's just incredible the fact that so much focus is, is you know, placed on um, those characters essentially doing very little but it's just become so interesting to be honest when you're watching it um um well thank you very much for for doing this interview it's been fantastic i really really appreciate you taking the time to do this and to come onto my show um and so jamie thank you so much for joining us it's been an honor thank you for inviting me on i'd uh, never turn down an opportunity to just rave about some really great films so yeah thank you so much thank you very much cheers jamie morris there talking about my love and his love for the films of wong kar wai specifically chunking express and in the mood for love please check them out they are terrific if you fancy playing eight pounds to rent them on bfi player that is <laughs> i don't know if you do but they are really worth checking out and in my opinion worth paying that bit of extra money so it's nearly time for the end of this week's show i know i'm really sad about it as well i, I don't know if you are <laughs> but we talked about a lot on this week's show talked about lots of great films and i'm sorry to leave you on a bum note but i just thought i'd make a very quick mention of the dig which is a film that i had a very hard time digging you could say. <laughs> it was due to be released in UK cinemas in the middle of January, on January 15th last month, but thanks to cinemas being shuttered as a result of lockdown, the movie went straight to Netflix on January 29th. And this movie's straight to streaming release, as with any movie that has skipped cinemas and gone straight to a subscription service like Netflix, says a lot about the future of cinemas. It's quite worrying, to be honest, that studios are dumping their cinema releases on a service like Netflix which doesn't have any rental fees, it just has a subscription fee. What does that say about the future of cinemas? Does this mean cinemas will die out? Is this the beginning of the end for them? These are all questions that you can't help but have when you see that The Dig has skipped cinemas and gone straight to Netflix. The film is based on John Preston's 2007 novel of the same name and tells the story of the 1939 Sutton Hoo excavation. The year is 1939, the year World War II began, and Carey Mulligan's Suffolk landowner, Edith Pretty, calls upon a local self-taught archaeologist come excavator named Basil Brown, who's played by Rafe Fiennes. She wants him to tackle a set of large burial 
burial mounds at her rural estate at Sutton Hoo near Woodbridge. She first offers him the same money he earned for the Ipswich Museum, the agricultural wage, but he claims this is inadequate, and so she ups the offer by 12% to £2 a week, which is approximately £120 in 2020. This is an offer that he accepts. Brown's former employers try unsuccessfully to persuade Brown to work on a Roman villa, which they think is more important. They also ignore Brown, who left school at 12 when he suggests the mounds are Anglo-Saxon rather than the more common Viking era. Brown works with the assistants at Pretty's estate and slowly excavates the more promising mounds. One day, however, a trench collapses on him, only for the lads to dig him out in time. Brown also spends most of his time alone with Pretty, and they bond with Edith's young son, Robert, played by Archie Barnes, while Brown ignores daily letters from his wife, May, played by Monica Dolan. Meanwhile, Edith struggles with her health and is warned by her doctor to avoid stress. The first thing to say about this movie is, although it was designed for a cinema release, it looks very televisual and frankly looks a lot better on a TV screen than it would have done at the pictures. I mean, we talked earlier about how News of the World would have been fantastic to see on a big screen. In the case of The Dig, I don't feel like I'm missing a great deal by not seeing it at the cinema. There's something a bit Julian Fellows and Downton Abbey about its enclosed setting at the Sutton Hoo Mounds. The home county setting has a whiff of Sunday night tea time TV drama and has a general lack of threat and cinematic material. That is apart from the scene where Basil gets trapped in a trench after it collapses on him. I couldn't get over Rafe Fiennes and his phony accent. He sounded a lot like Dick Van Dyke. Sorry, that was my attempts to impersonate Dick Van Dyke. His accent was that bad. I didn't know whether he was meant to be Irish or Southern or West Country or whatever. Look, I like Ray Fiennes. He's a great actor, a fabulous Lord Voldemort in Harry Potter and a marvellous M in the James Bond films. I just think accents aren't his strong point and I couldn't take him seriously and just laughed every time he spoke because his accent sounded so ridiculous. <laughs> that being said, Kerry Mulligan's performance was easily the highlight of the film. I mean, when has Carrie Mulligan ever been bad? I mean, she always is just such a terrific actress, and you can see her in a couple of weeks in Promising Young Woman, which has been generating her a lot of awards buzz. And the storyline here about Edith, Carrie Mulligan's character's deteriorating health, was definitely moving, especially the scene where she's walking around outside and gets heartburn. Yet the biggest problem I had with this movie was, ironically enough, Lily James, who is usually such a brilliant actress, but was just so spectacularly miscast in this movie. She plays this famed archaeologist called Peggy Piggott, and it's less attractive and believable an idea than Meg Ryan as a helicopter pilot. <laughs> I mean, seriously? Lily James as an archaeologist? <laughs> I just don't believe it. I think it's just bar, to be honest. I mean, they've given her glasses to unprettify her, you could say, and make her look nerdy. And they basically make her out to be a massive klutz, such as in the scene where she gets her foot stuck in a bucket of mud. But she just looks too intelligent to be a klutz, and frankly too pretty to be a famed archaeologist. I just didn't believe it at all. The Dig is undoubtedly a worthy, moving story, but it's let down by televisual direction, dodgy accents, and the most absurd 
casting choices. I mean, it's the kind of drama, to be honest, that Gemma Artisan has been specialising in lately. You know, that kind of 1940s slash 30s wartime drama set in the home counties, like Summerland or Their Finest. And I really wanted good old Gemma to just strut on and just be marvellous, as she always is. She could have made this work, but Fines and James just can't. That's The Dig, and it's available on Netflix now. So that's it, this week's show done and dusted, but I couldn't leave you without asking you the titular question, that's what you've been watching. I want to know what you've watched, whether it's a TV show or a film on Netflix or at a drive-in cinema. Well, maybe not, because they aren't open. <laughs> but please let me know what you've been watching in the world of TV and film at my podcast email address. That's what you've been watching at roshansreviews.co.uk. That's it from me today, guys. Thank you so much for listening and happy watching. This podcast's intro and outro music was brought to you by Music for Makers and was their own track, Stop and Go. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again soon.